Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So uh, we're drawing close to the end of the book of Revelation, which I can hardly believe we've uh, made it almost all the way through. We just got two more weeks after this week. We've slowed down a little bit to talk about the end. I don't know if you've ever had an experience where, you know, you, you, you got a plane ticket or something and you were going off to a new city and right before you left, you started to think, well, I wonder what kinds of things I'm going to be able to explore in that city. So you got online and you started looking at the history of the city and you discovered some new things about it. You discovered, uh, oh, there's this museum there or maybe there's this historical place to visit. And as you were, getting, you were, you were discovering that, you're getting excited about going to this new place. Well, the end of the book of Revelation is kind of like that. It's like God saying, hey, this is what it's going to be like when you go to the new city that I'm creating for those who come to faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And last week, we were able to start our exploration of this new city with Pastor Dante leading us in uh, understanding uh, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, which is sort of the introduction, this idea of the new city is this bride coming down and um, the, God will be with us, and he'll dwell with us, and Pastor Dante sort of unfolded that text. Today, we're going to look a little bit more uh, deeply into the description of the particular city that we're talking about, and I'm going to explain what even this city is. So would you open up to Revelation 21, Revelation 21, verse 9. If you need a Bible, raise your hand, and we'll give one to you. Um, and we mean give, actually, you can take it home with you but would really love for you to be following along in the text so that you can see the nuance and the beauty of what's being described here. And I would just say this, that you know, we're talking about heavenly things in these texts, and they're just beyond our imaginings. And the words can only get us so far. So we need to engage this morning a little bit of our creative mind, our artistic mind, as we think about what uh, we're being taught here in this particular text. Okay, I don't know about you in, in the Bible you have, mine says the new Jerusalem here in verse 9, and that's where we're going to be reading and looking at. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. This is John describing what's happening to him as this vision as being re- relayed to him. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. 12 angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia, which is the equivalent of about 1,400 miles. Its length, width, and height are equal. Now, that's interesting. We'll come back to that. 
Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits, about 250 feet, might be referring to the thickness of the wall, according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. I looked it up. The largest pearl ever discovered is one foot by two foot. These pearls have to be like the equivalent of the 250-foot diameter. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And then this. this we're going to come back to this, verse 22, but this would be very striking for the reader of John's day. I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, as you can see in this text, we've got a further detailed description of this new city, this heavenly city. And we're going to dive into it, and I'd like to talk about it in three different ways. I want to talk about the, who, the what, the who, and the how of this new heaven, this, this new Jerusalem. And what we would like to be thinking towards is how do you get ready to go there? Just like I said in the introduction about going to a place and researching and understanding what it's about so that when you get there, you're going to enjoy it. Well, in the same way, we want to be asking the question throughout our time this morning, how do we get ready to go there? So let's start off by talking about the what. And for the what, I've got the city here. Verse 9 reminds us that one of the seven angels, it says, who had held the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues. And that should be a reminder to us to refer back to chapter 17. In fact, it's almost a direct quote from chapter 17. And I'll remind you what happens in chapter 17. There is a woman, just like there's a woman here, but she's a prostitute in chapter 17. And I'll remind us that the concept of prostitution is used throughout the book of Revelation and throughout the Bible to talk about whenever the people of God turn away from God to worship something other than God. That's idolatry, and it's associated with prostitution. Now, the people of God are, are characterized as the woman, but if they turn away, then it's, it's like committing adultery against God. So that's the metaphor that is, is, is kind of overriding this whole piece. And, and that woman, the prostitute, is a city. 
and the city's name is Babylon. And all the inhabitants of Babylon have committed idolatry. They're worshiping things that are not God. And we talked a lot about this both in the book of Hosea and then in some of our study of Revelation. But some of the idols that we go to might be the idol of comfort or control in our day today. Um, we might look to social media to try and um, feed our sense of value and worth as we're you know, trying to find if people like us. All different kinds of things, money, success, wealth. All of these can become idols in our lives that draw our worship away from the true and living God. And when that happens, the metaphor, the, the power of it is it's like we're committing adultery against God because we're, we're supposed to be wedded to God, but we're, now we're worshiping something else. So the image is very strong, but the, the, the corollary is in this chapter, there's a new city, and it's also described as a woman, but this one's described as a bride. And it's almost as if this prostitute has been transformed into a radiant, glorious bride, and she comes down out of heaven, and the bride is sort of the the pinnacle of adornment, and the city comes down at its greatest adorning, and John is there watching this, and he tries to describe, and he's grasping straws to try to figure out how to describe this, and he uses these words like jasper. Jasper would have been a stone that reflected the light, and so somehow maybe this city has a kind of a glow to it is the picture that he seems to be painting for us. It's this beautiful bride uh, and that has this glow to it. And uh, the size of it is massive. It's 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles by 1,400 miles high. Now that's, again, going to take some explaining. It's a massive city. Uh, and uh, it glows and it's got this incredible wall. And the wall is characterized by these 12 gates, and each gate is a beautiful pearl. And the name of one of the sons of Israel is on the gate, and the foundations are there. And the foundations are, 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 are constructed out of all of these different jewels, and it goes through these 12 different kinds of jewels. And if you're a student of the Bible, uh, and I, I didn't catch this on first reading, but with some, some study, it should remind us back in Exodus of the priest and the breastplate that the priest that was made for the priest, which was, which was uh, dotted with all of these same jewels. And so it's almost as if the regalia of the priest has been expanded now to the size of a city and we get to enter in and live in the midst of it. And the, the priestly imagery is, is of the people of God. The, the people are, are referred to as sort of the priests of the living God, the, the ones who who are there in the presence of God to minister to God and worship God. And people have said of the end of the book of Revelation that it's almost like the tale of two cities, the tale of Babylon and then the tale of the New Jerusalem. And here's the part that's very important, and that is is that there's just these two cities, and everybody ends up being a citizen of one or the other. They're just two cities. There's only two stops on the train. And we have to choose which one we will be a citizen of. And it's as if the angel says to John, let me just describe to you how beautiful is the new Jerusalem so that you will make sure and tell everybody that that's the place they want to go. That's the stop they want to get off on, is the one 
That's the new Jerusalem. In fact, he says, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to show you. And he shows him the jasper and the, the size of it and the 12 gates and the foundations and the priest breastplate and all of that. And so what we see in this is that the city is actually a space. It's a physical space. And some of you may have had this conception of heaven that was not actually biblical but more cultural. You maybe thought of heaven as some sort of cloud place where people exist playing harps, you know, this is what we see in the cartoons, and it just sort of goes on and on for eternity, and frankly, it's not very appealing, because who wants to play the harp on a cloud for the rest of eternity, right? We're not looking for that, not trying to do that right now, right? But the picture that the Bible gives us is actually much more robust. Heaven is a physical place, it's a geographical location, you actually exist there in the same way that you do here on earth. Only all the, the sin and the uncleanness and the decay and the brokenness has been rooted out of it. And we know that space is very important. Have you ever been in a place where you just wanted to stop and, and rest because of the beauty of it? Because it just all the pieces seemed to work together and, and it, just, it, was, it was very human and, and beautiful. And This is why we have architects, right? Because they create spaces like this. It's a, it's a gift to be able to do that, to be able to create a space where we want to be. Last weekend, Jody, my wife, and I were gone because we were in New York City. Our daughter had a performance there, and we were going to see her. But we were walking around New York City, and uh, I'd always wanted to see the Lincoln Center, which was uh, up in the northern part of Midtown. So we walked up there late in the evening, and we came by the, the Juilliard School, and we walked up some steps of the Juilliard School, and then we came across a little pathway that went over the street. We entered into this plaza. It's called the Hearst Plaza. I'd never seen this before, never seen a picture of it before, and I was absolutely floored by the Hearst Plaza there at the center of the Lincoln Center. On the side was this grassy hill that went, it was huge, massive, and yet underneath it was this concrete slab. You could climb on the hill and sit on it and enjoy the scenery, but there was a restaurant underneath this grassy hill. And right next to that was this beautiful reflection pool. You know those kind of pools where there's no waves because the water spills over the edge and it keeps getting collected and recycled. And it was nighttime and the lights were on and they're all twinkling in this pool. And you can see the reflection of this grassy slope even in the pool. And then right next to that was this uh, open space uh, on which they had planted these two rows of trees that were, they'd lost all their leaves and it was just absolutely gorgeous. We, we kind of strolled through the middle of it, and then there was this bench all around the outside, and we sat down on the bench. But the bench back was leaned back like this. So when you sit on the bench and you lean back, you're staring up into the trees, into the sky. It was stunningly beautiful, and there's nobody around. Jody and I just had this space to ourselves, and we just wanted to be there because it was so beautiful and so wonderful. And I think that this even just only begins to capture a, just a shred of what the New Jerusalem is described as. It's, 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 it's characterized by the beauty that's unimaginable, spaces that we can only begin to dream of that minister to our souls, the combination of God's natural world and human culture and architecture. That was what was so beautiful about the, 
the Hearst Plaza is you had the grass and the trees and the water, which were all the building and the rock, all the building blocks that God had given us, and yet they had been manicured and cultivated by human touch. That's what culture is. The Bible starts in a garden, and it's, it's just all the raw material, and then it ends in a city that's beautiful, and it's the combination of taking all that God has given us and manicuring it and making it into a space. God cares about our contribution. He gives us the building blocks. That's what the New Jerusalem is described as. That's the what of the New Jerusalem. It's a physical space, and it's beautiful beyond imaginings. And all of our attempts to try and describe it will fall very much short. The theme in the book of Revelation we've been coming back to is overcoming. And what, what, we're, what we're being taught here is that if you want to overcome, you want to you choose the new Jerusalem. That's what it means to be an overcomer, to choose the new Jerusalem, this gorgeous city. And, and so how do you do that? And it's, the answer is right there in the text. It's, it's all about the people of God. The, the wall and the gate, entrance into the city, is stewarded by the people of God. So the gates have the name of the sons of Israel, the people of God, on the gates that give access to the city. And the foundations that support the wall where access was granted to the city are the apostles. And so what, what, what we're seeing here is that God has given to his people stewardship of entrance into the city. And that stewardship is a stewardship of carrying the message of the good news of the gospel. Because it's the gospel that enables a person to enter in to the new Jerusalem. We don't want there to be anything unclean and, and sinful in the new Jerusalem. But if we go there without being dealt with, we'll bring that in. So God's figured out a way in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross to bring cleansing from sin so that we might be prepared for entrance into the new city. And the ones who steward that gospel message of faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, that's the people of God. So if you're exploring what it means to be a Christian, or you're thinking about spiritual things, you're dipping your toe in the water of, of uh, spirituality and Christianity, and maybe you're here visiting today, then this is an important kind of compass for you. That the people of God, the apostles, the teaching of the apostles, the story of the life of Israel in the Old Testament, these point you to the way to enter into the New Jerusalem. They tell you the they all point to Jesus Christ and the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's where you look. If you're exploring, explore there. Open up the word. Look at the teaching of the apostles. Communicate and talk with the people of God who can help you to understand the word of God and ultimately come to that place where you're ready to put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And there's another important piece here. For those who've come to faith, let's be reminded that we as the people of God are the stewards of this message. It's up to us and on us 
to be proclaimers of the gospel. We're ambassadors. We are that, that wall on the outside that, that offers the, the entrance by proclaiming Jesus Christ. And that's an important reality, an important uh, stewardship that we have to remember has been given to us by the Lord. Anyway, the city is beautiful. It has a, a particular entrance through the gospel, and it's beyond our imaginings. That's the what. It's a physical place. The new heaven and the new earth is a physical place. But let's talk about the who of heaven. And for this, I'm introducing from the text this term temple. So the what has to do with the city. The who has to do with... Now, I, this is going to take some explaining, I'm sure. You're asking, why does the temple speak to the who of heaven? Well, I would draw your attention back into Scripture to the Old Testament, to the story of Moses. And in, Mo, in the story of Moses, uh, he's leading the Israelites, and they camp at various places. And every time they camp at the very center of the camp, they put up this tent, this tabernacle. And it's the dwelling place of God. And, and, and Moses is the steward of that. And he goes in and he speaks with God and he comes out and he's transformed and he leads the people. And they're so happy because they have the presence of God at the center of their community. And as time goes on and they establish themselves in the promised land, then we have King David and then Solomon, and they actually build a physical temple. So a tabernacle is a, is a temporary tent that can be moved. The temple is the same idea, it's just that now it's built out of stone and it stays in one place. And so they build this awesome temple. And we have a picture uh, of that temple, both the tabernacle and there's the tabernacle, there's the temple. And uh, people would enter into this compound and they would, they would depending on kind of who they were, they'd be able to go from the outside to the inside, and the tallest portion of the building there had an entryway, and then in the back of that entryway what was, called, was called the Holy of Holies. The Holy of Holies was a cube, 35 by 35 by 35, and the understand, feet. And the understanding was that in the Holy of Holies, God was dwelling. In fact, no one would go in there because uh, of the holiness of God. And so, except once a year, the high priest would go in during the Day of Atonement. And, and we don't know if this actually happened, but the tradition says that they would actually put a rope around the leg of the high priest because for fear that if he were to faint or somehow pass out while he's in there, nobody would want to have to go in there to get him. They'd want to just be able to pull him out on the rope because they were afraid of going into the Holy of Holies. So this is a very special place. Well, uh, this is at the very center. And so... Uh, all of Israel, whenever in the New Testament people talk about going up to Israel, they talk about going up to Jerusalem, excuse me, they talk about going up because Jerusalem was viewed as the very center of everything that they were as a community. You always went up to Jerusalem. Now, it was on a high hill, so that was part of it, but it was also because it was central, and at the very center of Jerusalem was the temple, and that's where the presence of God was. It's essential to their understanding of who they are and of the world around them, of their everything. So when we come to verse 22, and it says there's no temple in the city, it's almost confusing. Because you would have expected the grandest and the greatest temple to be present in the new Jerusalem. But then you start to think about it a little bit more, and you start to ask this question, well, why is the city a cube? Hmm, where do we see a cube before, in the Holy of Holies, 35 feet by 35 feet by 35 feet. 
Now the entire New Jerusalem is a cube, 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia. That's 1,400 miles. It is massive cube. And what the writer is trying to communicate, what we're trying to understand, what we understand from this is what's happened is that the New Jerusalem has become essentially the Holy of Holies, the entire thing. And instead of just once a year, the priest going in, the people of God now get to dwell in the Holy of Holies for all eternity in the presence of God. So there's no need for a temple. The whole thing is the temple where God is in His glory and His presence. And we get to be on the inside. The reason that uh, Jody and I were up at the Hearst Plaza is because we had tried to get in to the jazz at Lincoln Center, which is just a little bit south of that, because I heard on that Saturday morning that Chick Corea, pianist, jazz pianist, was going to be playing a concert of Thelonious Monk Saturday night with Wynton Marsalis. I got to be there for that. So we went, we walked all the way over, tried to get tickets. There were no tickets left, of course. We went and spent our day. We came back right before the show. They told us to come back. Maybe, probably not, but just come back and try. We tried to get tickets, and there were no tickets. So then my wife, who doesn't really take no for an answer easily, um, we sort of snuck upstairs, and we got close, and we talked to another person. He said, well, just wait over here and see. And now it's time for the concert to start, and we're sitting outside of the concert hall. And there's this little tiny TV and you can see the concert happening in the TV. And the sound is atrocious. So you could kind of hear how great it would be were you inside, right? But you're not here experiencing any of it. And then about a minute later, a guy walks up claiming that he has a ticket, but he apparently does it. And this whole commotion starts. So it's just turning into a nightmare, right? We want to be on the inside, but we're stuck on the outside, watching something so beautiful go down, but only just sort of getting a glimpse of it and not being able to be a part of it, right? Holy of Holies is that on steroids. You want to be on the inside. You want to be in the presence of the living God, cleansed from sin, now boldly, confidently approaching the throne room, Worshipping, loving, living, doing, making, creating, relating. All of that is happening on the inside of the Holy of Holies. And you want to be present. And thank God that Jesus Christ has made a way for us to be present. It reminds us of an important truth that while we look forward to that day, ministers to us, ministers to me in this day as well. It's a reminder that the greatest thing about heaven is not that it's going to be the most beautiful architectural wonder that you've ever experienced or even dreamed of or dreamt, imagined possible. That's going to be really good. But the greatest thing is going to be that God is going to be dwelling there in his greatest fullness and in relationship to you. That's the essence. There's not going to need to be a temple anymore. Because we'll all be in the Holy of Holies. The whole thing is the temple. That's what it is. And that's the most beautiful treasure that we have. 
And we can't lose sight of this important spiritual truth that the deepest longing of our hearts is to be in the presence of God. To bask in His glory. To receive His goodness. To celebrate His perfection and wonder and joy. That's what our hearts long for. And and here's the incredible thing, that God knows that about us, and he hasn't left us without recourse in this time right now. We don't merely have to wait for that for the future because God has given us a deposit of his presence in the Holy Spirit. That's why we've got the Holy Spirit, so that we don't have to wait entirely until that day. And so the question for us is, to what extent, I want to ask us this this morning as we're thinking about the future we're thinking about the presence of God. To what extent does a hunger for the presence of God in your life shape the way you live? Do you order your life around seeking God, seeking the teaching of the Lord, seeking the, seeking the presence of God? What are your, just take a moment and take stock. What are the greatest priorities in your life? The reminder of the text this morning is that the greatest thing that you and I can achieve, the greatest thing we can long for is to be in the presence of the living, loving Lord. And we can pursue that now. That's why he's given us this book. That's why he's given us the possibility of prayer. It's why he's given us the community. It's why he's given us the celebration of communion so that we can seek after the Lord, so that we can pursue God in our lives. That's number one. Have you forgotten that? Have you forgotten that that is your greatest need this morning? Be reminded It's your greatest need. So the what is the city, the who is the temple, and the temple is all about the presence of God. And then the the last one is the how. How does this take, how does, what's the mechanism? And, And here we're just so far beyond human capacity to understand and speak. But God's given us a few little handholds, and he brings up the concept of light here. One of the greatest metaphors for God is the sun. In fact, speculating a little bit, I think God gave us the sun because uh, it points to who he is and the, the, the nature of his relationship to us. The sun is a kind of a, a source of life. You wouldn't have the warmth that life requires if you didn't have the sun. You wouldn't have the, the, the plants that the animals need to grow, and you wouldn't have the animals being able to survive. And as humans, we wouldn't have the light to be able to see where we're going. The sun is a kind of a source of life for us. And and that's true whether you're even talking in a scientific way or a spiritual way. The the sun is a source of life. It's incredibly important. This world would not be habitable without it. But the sun, it appears, now that we come to Revelation 21, is merely a stand-in, a proxy for something much greater. For the one who is truly the source of life. The sun is a stand-in. The sun is a proxy. The sun is a pinch hitter. uh, An understudy. A sign merely of something much greater. And when the new heaven and the new earth finally are established, the sun will no longer be necessary Because God himself and the Lamb, which is Jesus Christ, will be the sun and the moon, providing all that we need for life, for vision, for everything that is required. That's what the text is saying, is that the sun is merely just a proxy. Now, how does the sun work? The the, the sun radiates this heat 
and the heat comes and the, the light comes and we, we, we're able to, to, to get what we need to live and to thrive. Well, in the same way, the glory emanates from God and provides what we need. Maybe you've had those moments when at the end of winter time, you come uh, out on a, the first warm day and the sun hits your skin and you have this just sense of the warmth and it just sort of ministers to you all throughout your being. Friday morning on my day off, I went out uh, on my deck and um, I found this. Um, it was a little chilly out still, but the sun was coming down and the deck was hot. And that's my dog. She's not dead. She is absorbing the rays of the sun and just breathing slowly. And it was just this great. In fact, she got up a few minutes later, and then I laid down in that exact same spot. <laughs> and I'm not kidding you. I fell asleep in the sun, and it was just the greatest moment. And you know how that is. That's happened to you. Um, somehow, through the metaphor of the sun, God is trying to help us to see what it's like to be in his presence and the way that he ministers to us by his presence. The glory of God emanates from God to us and enters in and we absorb that and it touches all the parts of who we are and brings life. It's the source of life. And in heaven, there's going to be no intermediary. It will be direct day in and day out. And it will be so bright and so wonderful that in verse 24, the nations will be drawn. They'll walk by its light. So you get the picture of all these different nations and tribes and tongues. We've come to this theme so many times in the book of Revelation. They're all going to be gathered together and illumined by this light. And so... Uh, it says the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, which is an interesting phrase because almost never does the Bible talk about glory except in relation to God. And so what does it mean here? And, and, and those who study the scripture, probably the, our best understanding is that the glory of the kings is to be a king was to be the steward of the culture of the nation. And so all of that is what's being, uh, being dis- meant by this, the glory of the king's Uh, entering in and be illumined by this light, that the various cultures of the different peoples, now having been cleansed of all that's broken and sinful and unclean, are nevertheless still present in their unique diversity in this new kingdom, and it's all being illumined by the glory of God. And you see this beautiful, radiant diversity that's been perfected and redeemed in all of its uh, uh, intricacy and splendor and difference, all gathered together worshiping the living God. One more New York story. On Sunday morning, we went to a church called the Brooklyn Tabernacle, which meets right downtown, kind of in the gritty area of Brooklyn. And about 6,000 people gather there on a Sunday. And the Brooklyn Tabernacle is probably the most diverse church I've ever seen in my life. And they're known for the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And we happen to be there on album release day. So I didn't get to see Chick Corea, but I got to see album, album release day at the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. And we sat in the sixth row 
And the service started, and the music just started blasting, and there we're just in front of us is this choir. And you've never seen a more diverse choir than the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. There's people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and they're just singing. And it's just blasting you away. And my wife turned to me, she said, I'm pretty much in heaven right now. I mean, it's incredible. In fact, I was looking up descriptions of the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir, and this is from New Release today, and it says this. It's, highly un- it's a highly unlikely ensemble, a mixture of ethnic and economic backgrounds in the heart of a city synonymous with coldness and decay. The choir is made up of attorneys and street people, nurses and ex-crack addicts, a unique cross-section of humanity. Pastor Symbola explains None of us would have met if it weren't for Christ. Our backgrounds are just too diverse. But all of us have one thing in common. We have all been lifted up and saved. So the choir sings, not about a theological position, but about what has happened to them. It is not theory. It is reality. This is where we're headed together because of the work of Christ. And anything the good that we've started to speak about this morning only just barely scratches the surface of what awaits. And somehow we get the privilege of living into that already today as God assembles this community of increasing diversity and roots us in the gospel of Jesus Christ and through us proclaims entrance into the heavenly city through the person of Jesus Christ. And even in special moments, I'm telling you, like when we're worshiping today, we get to bask in that glory of the living God and it penetrates through our skin into our soul and it is the very source of life. That's the gospel, and it is so good. It's better than you ever dreamed it could be, and that's what the book of Revelation is trying to tell us. So, God, we need you. We need you to enlighten us, to shine that light in our hearts, to be illumined, to see just what you're doing in this crazy mixed-up world out of which you are building something more beautiful than we've ever dreamed of. So would you meet us in our own fragility, our own clouded understanding, our uncertainties about the future, our missteps, our sinful attitudes and actions where we, where we just need so much healing through Christ. Would you meet us and lift us, lift our hearts and minds into the eternal heavenly vision so that as we move through this world, we're actually seeing what's really going on in the grand sweep of history. And we can function as your ambassadors, your hands and feet, the body of Christ in a hurting, broken world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.